One of my personal favorite feelings is I always enjoy the f what I feel after I finish a book. Um, when I read the last sentence and get to close it and just kind of that sense of accomplishment um, that I feel. And so hopefully maybe you'll have some sense of that feeling this morning as we come to the end of 1 John. We've been going through this book this month and we come finally to chapter 5 and after this morning we will be done with it. And one of the things you've probably noticed as we've gone through this book is that John tends to repeat himself a little bit. He doesn't say exactly the same thing in every chapter, but he kind of spirals or circles back to similar themes and he explores them and expands on them and mentions something different or new about it. And one of these big themes that he kind of hits over and over isn't just that we are to love one another, but he also is really asking, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is, how do you know whether somebody's a Christian or not? How, what does that actually look like? Or really, too, what is true faith? And so that, this morning, is going to be the title of our message, and the main question that we're going to ask is, what is true faith? And we'll see in the chapter 5 of 1 John that John really gives us three characteristics of true faith. Um, these are three things. It doesn't encompass everything that true faith is, but it gives us a, a wonderful picture of what true faith looks like. So we're going to go and we're going to read um, 1 John 5. Uh, and so if you wouldn't, if you are able, if you would stand um, just as we read through God's Word. And he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. For who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are the three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. And if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He has been born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, but whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the, have the request we have asked of Him. And if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that leads not to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true and in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's Word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that You would 
um, come and be here this morning. Um, I ask that you would be with those in our church family who are not here, um, those who are traveling. Um, we think especially of those who are, are not here because they are sick, um, especially thinking of, of Jean um, this morning. I pray that you would be with them, that you would bless them, that you would strengthen them, that you would heal them. And Lord, for those of us who are here as well, I pray that you would open our eyes or open our ears and open our eyes. Would we see and hear from your word? And would you help us come to a better understanding of what true faith is? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can have a seat. So the first characteristic that we're going to look at if you're taking notes in your bulletin is that true faith overcomes. So true faith overcomes. And overcomes is a word, it, it really oftentimes means conquers. Um, and John is one of the main authors in the New Testament who uses this word of conquering or overcoming more than anyone else. And as I looked it up, there's about like 30-ish uses of it, and John uses like 27 of them. So he, it's one of his favorite words. More than anybody else, he likes to use it. And most of the time, it's used actually to describe Jesus in the book of Revelation. And to describe him as the overcomer or the conqueror. But he uses this word three times here in this first five verses. He uses it in verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes. Verse 4 again. For victory that has overcome. And verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? And so our faith is, is a faith that conquers and I think it conquers and overcomes a couple different things. And so this is not just the world that we see that there in these three verses. But I, I think looking at it in these first five verses, we can kind of see it in this theme. Um, so the, the next part of kind of a, one of the things that faith overcomes and conquers is our selfishness. That faith overcomes our selfishness or really our love for ourselves. This whole book has been really the theme of loving one another. And well, it's tough to love one another if you're loving yourself a little too much. And this is one of the themes he has, right? Jesus said, this is the second greatest commandment. First, love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your strength. And second is like it. Then love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, it's also the implication as yourself. It's Jesus acknowledging, well, all of us really love ourselves first. And so then the hurdle we have to get over is to love other people more than we love ourselves, or at least as much as. And so verse 1 tells us, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves those who have been born of Him. So if you love God, that leads to love for others. And especially it should lead for love for those who God says that He loves, and who are sons and daughters of God. If you don't love them, it's hard to imagine that you love God. That's something John has said over and over and over in this book. But that kind of love, loving others and loving one another, takes work, doesn't it? So we love ourselves a lot. We love our own preferences. We love our own comfort. We love our own opinions. We love our own voices. We love to listen to ourselves talk. We like our perspective. And loving others sometimes requires that we have to give that up. And this love, well, John tells it here too. He says, you know, whoever loves the Father loves those born of him. So he's talking about loving believers. But I don't think that he's meant to be a limiting love. I don't know if you've gotten the sense, I haven't in the book of 1 John, that John says, hey, don't worry, just love other believers and you don't have to love anybody else. And that's how you know you're a Christian. If you, as long as you just love those people, you're good, but you're set free, you don't have to love anyone else. I don't think that's what John means here. This really, it's not meant to be a limiting thing, but an expansive thing. It's supposed to be, well, 
You love Christians, and then also that should then lead to loving more people as well. That that love should just continue to overflow and expand. And John, too, we have to remember the reality of the church in John's day. That the church in the early days had people gathering from all over. Not just all over the nations in different places, but all over the social sphere. We, we know from Acts we had churches where you have rich merchants and then slave girls worshiping together. That was radical. That didn't happen in other places. There wasn't anywhere else you would go to that you would be in the same place. That you would sit down and share a meal like they did at communion every time they gathered together. Where, well, I'm going to eat with somebody who is way above or way below me. No, 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 I can't do that. I'm too important. And yet, they loved one another. Not perfectly, but this is what John is calling them to do. So that's the first, or one of the places that our faith overcomes. Our faith should overcome our selfishness and then lead to love for others. True faith also should overcome our sinfulness. It overcomes our inability to obey God. And John connects this with how faith overcomes and leads to one another too. Right away in verse 2. And by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. So it also connects those together too. It's not just we overcome our selfishness and we love one another. Well, how do I know if I'm loving one another? Well, I can tell if I'm loving one another if I'm doing what God told me to do. Those are connected. And so... Faith should overcome our sinfulness. But it's hard to keep God's commandments, isn't it? If we're honest, it's difficult. I'm not even talking about the Old Testament law, right? I know the last time you went and read through Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy and saw a lot of those and probably thought, thank the Lord, I don't have to keep that. That sounds very difficult. I can't handle it. It's so much easier now. Well, okay, let me just remind you. Let's just go through the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just remind ourselves of some of the commands that Jesus gives us. Tells us, hey, if you're going to be a member of the kingdom of God, you're going to be one of my children, this is what we live like. This is what we do. We're to be a people who turn the other cheek when we're attacked by our enemies. We don't retaliate and we don't respond in vengeance. We turn the other cheek and we take it. We're not just a people who don't commit adultery, but we also are supposed to be people who don't even look at someone else with lust. That's more difficult. We're supposed to be a people who, instead of judging others for their sin, respond by repenting for our own sins. We're supposed to be a people who keep our word instead of lying. We don't even have to make promises or vows because we, a liar and untruth would never escape our lips. We're a people who give to the needy and are happy to do it in secret because we don't need recognition or our name up on a plaque. We're a people who fast in secret. We're people who are never anxious. We don't respond with being anxious or worried, but just pray all the time. That's just the Sermon on the Mount, some of the commands of Jesus. Okay, I don't know about you. How have you done on that just this week? Okay, all of us have probably struggled on some of those. And that's just scratching the surface of some of the things that Jesus commands us to do and to obey. It's hard to keep those commands, isn't it? Yet look at verse 3. This is the love of God. We keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Hold on, I, let's read that second part again. His commandments are not burdensome. How in the world can that be? Okay, we just, I didn't even go through the whole Sermon on the Mount. You should read it again and just remind yourself and go, well, John, this is, it's hard, man. Okay, I don't know, maybe your neighbors are easier. Loving my neighbors is a little difficult. They can get on my nerves. Okay, there's people in my life that aren't that easy to love. John, what are you doing? What, what do you mean his commands are not burdensome? 
Now this doesn't mean, what John isn't saying is not that Jesus hasn't commanded us anything, because that's clear. It doesn't mean Jesus just wants us to sit back and follow our hearts and do whatever we want, and that'll lead to faith and honoring Him. No. I think John is echoing the very words of Jesus, where Jesus says, My burden is easy, and my yoke is light. Now how can that be? How can His commands not be burdensome, and how can the yoke be light? Well, because our faith overcomes our sinfulness. True faith, one of the characteristics of it, is that it overcomes our disobedience. And the yoke of the Lord is easy because, not I think because we are so awesome, but because the Holy Spirit comes and pulls it with us. And while we attempt to live out the commands of God, the Holy Spirit comes inside of our lives and transforms us and helps us and He aids us. And He changes us. And over our lives as we continue to follow Jesus, pulling alongside of Him, the goodness of God and what He does and how He transforms us makes us more and more and more like Jesus. It doesn't happen instantly all at a moment, but it continues to happen. You can see if you look back even over your life, there should be things that you once struggled with a long time ago that you don't deal with in the same way anymore. But all of us should have areas of our life where we see that kind of growth. Where, wow, I used to be a person filled with, with rage and, and anger. And wow, I haven't yelled at anyone in a while. I'm not as angry as I used to be. Maybe I still wrestle with that some, but that's, that's transformed. There should be all sorts of different places like that, that it happens. And true faith, it overcomes us and transforms us. And it makes us love God. And the more that we fall in love with God, the more that we obey Him. Because we simply can't help it. Just because we love Jesus, we want to do the things that Jesus calls us to do. It's a true faith that it helps us overcome our sinfulness. And true faith, it also overcomes the world. True faith overcomes the world. Each time that John says overcomes, specifically and primarily, he seems to have the world in mind, right? Verse 4, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's one of the promises of God. But our faith will overcome the world. And John, when he uses the world, a lot of the time he seems to have in mind everything outside of God's kingdom. Everything outside of Jesus. Everything outside of those. That those principalities and those powers of darkness and everything that tries to withstand Jesus and his kingdom does not get the final word. It will not win. That our faith is, this is the victory. It's our faith. That is good news, and that's encouraging and wonderful. But this also isn't some kind of triumphant victory song that John is proclaiming. What John doesn't mean here is that everything in our lives is going to work out great because our faith overcomes. So therefore, you never have to worry about your bank account anymore because our faith overcomes. Or you never have to worry about sinning again because our faith overcomes. Or your, your job is always going to give you more and more raises. Or your kids and grandkids are always going to behave and never walk too far away from God. That's not exactly what it means. This overcoming doesn't always mean our own greatness. Verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our faith overcomes, not because of ourself, but because of the God who overcomes. And our faith, it rests in the victory of Jesus that happened at the cross and that we know will happen again when He returns. Our coming victory that victory that will overcome the world finally will be when Jesus returns to rule and reign and he wipes out all of the armies and enemies of the nations with a single word from his mouth. That is the true faith that overcomes. 
Do you have true faith? The disciples and the apostles had true faith that they overcame. They had faith that turned the world upside down was the way that they were described by people who did not like them. Not their fans. Their opposition said that about them. Yet these disciples, the apostles, they were often executed, banished, beheaded. They weren't made kings. They weren't made bishops and popes and put in charge of lots of things. They didn't get rich and have big mansions. They didn't seem like conquerors. But they overcame. They had a faith that overcame. Read through Hebrews 11. It's often called the hall of fame or the hall of faith. You read that and almost none of those people looked like they overcame in their life. But they trusted in the victory that was coming, even if they knew they wouldn't get to see it in their own lifetime. Do you have a faith that overcomes, a faith that overcomes your selfishness or sinfulness and that will ultimately overcome the world? So first characteristic. The second characteristic of true faith is that true faith believes God. True faith believes God. It's important anytime we talk about well, what you know, faith is. Well, what is your faith in? It's kind of significant. You know, faith in a lot of different things. But ultimately, our faith needs to be in Jesus and really needs to be in God. Verses 6 through 12 are, are really all around this question of who are you going to believe about Jesus? And primarily it asks us in terms of what is the testimony about Jesus that you're going to listen to? And let's see, how many times the word testify or testimony you find in these verses? I'll just read them all for you. Verse 6, the one who testifies. Verse 7, three that testify. Verse 9, the testimony of men, the testimony of God. And again in 9, the testimony of God, says that twice. Verse 10, the testimony in itself. And 10, the testimony that God. And finally again in verse 11, this is the testimony. I think I caught them all. I counted eight. You can double check my math. Okay, that is a lot of repetition of using the same word. I think there's something about the testimony that's going on here. And all of this testimony is about who is Jesus? Who really is He? I want you to, to picture a courtroom, right, where you're, you're the judge. Maybe there's not a, a jury or you are just the only one on the jury. And you've got the defense and the prosecutor are both calling witnesses who are going to testify. And you're the deciding vote. You, you are the one who is going to weigh this all and decide what is true and what is right. This is what John kind of does here is he puts us in that seat and says, look at all of this testimony. Now, who are you going to believe? Verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that life is in His Son. And whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son doesn't have life. So let's dig into all of these different things that testify. In the beginning, these first couple of verses, there's a lot of discussion about the water and the blood and the Spirit. And not the water only, but the water and the blood. And there's a lot of discussion kind of throughout church history over what is that? What does that mean? Because it's kind of strange. It's a little different. Um, John doesn't exactly define what he means by the water and the blood and the Spirit and what these are. And so kind of as you look, if you, you read, you get asked six different pastors and you might get six or at least three different answers possibly. I'm going to cover briefly a couple of them. I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but it's confusing enough it, it bears some discussion. And one of the primary things that people saw, at least early in church history, church fathers like Tertullian, Ambrose, Augustine said, hey, th this water and the blood, that's a reference to baptism and communion. 
because the water, so they're talking about Jesus' baptism, and we celebrate baptism, and so and then the blood, that must be communion in the Eucharist. So I think that's what's going on there. It's a little bit of a stretch to me, but I, I can kind of see the option. Okay. Another option here is that, you know, the water refers to Jesus' death. If you remember when Jesus died on the cross, and after he had died, he was stabbed by the Romans with the spear, and then it said, and what came out of him? Water and blood. And there's only one gospel that includes that detail, and that's the gospel of John. So that could also make sense that John would be referring back to that, and that both of these things are referring to Jesus' blood. And that was, you know, was evidence that Jesus truly was dead. So that could be it. King James Bible believe this is a reference to the Trinity. And that's why you have all of these things, right? The, the water and the spirit and the blood. And they're referring to the, the triune God. And they thought so highly of this. If you have a King James Bible in front of you, you may notice you had an extra sentence or two that the rest of our Bibles do not have. And there's a longer story behind, you know, how did that happen and what is that? I'm not going to get in there, but if you're interested, pull me aside. I'll, I'll explain it to you. Um, now, my, my own opinion is just a little different than those. Again, you're allowed to disagree with me. But I think that the water here is referring to the birth of Jesus. And in that phrase, especially verse 6, for he came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So I don't think they're both referring to the same thing. If they're both referring to his death, then I don't think that that can be it. Uh, I think that it's referring to the birth of Jesus and his human life, and that, that water is the reference to the process of being born. And then the blood is a reference to Jesus obviously dying at the cross. And the Spirit seems to be a reference to the Holy Spirit coming down at Pentecost. And so all of those things, right, are testifying to Jesus. It's like, hey, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the only place eternal life comes from. Now, you can disagree with me on my particular interpretation of what I think the water references. And we don't want to get so lost in staring at a tree that we forget the forest and wait, what is the whole point of this passage? The whole point of all of these verses, right, from 6 to 12, all of them is about Jesus is God. And all of the testimony that God has given points to that. Whatever that is, that, that is the main point. But there are many people who don't agree with that. They might like some of the testimony, but not all of it. They might say things like, well, I like, I like Jesus. I like the Sermon on the Mount. That was really nice. I, I like when Jesus told us to love one another. You know, that's pretty good. I might even think Jesus did some good miracles. You know, he's really nice to women. He healed the sick. He, he was good to kids, told some great stories. You know, but I don't really think he was God. I think he was just nice. Many people went crazy afterwards. This is what a lot of people say these days. And like me, so I think water refers to just Jesus' life. So I think that's why some people would be like, well, I like the water, but I don't really like the blood part. I like the life of Jesus, not so sure about the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if I want to go there. But the problem is that when you do that, you are missing the whole testimony. You've got a misinformed gospel, if you can even call it that. It's just a false gospel, and you are missing the point. And verse 10 has strong words for those who choose that they don't want to believe everything that God has to say about who Jesus is. Verse 10, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So if you have some kind of faith, or if your faith in Jesus is just abstract, or, you know, he's really nice, not sure that he really saved me from sin, or maybe he even lived, but I just don't know. What John says that you are saying is that you are calling God a liar. So someone who says that, who says, I don't really think Jesus is God, 
is in effect saying, God, you are a liar. You are not telling the truth. And either God is a liar or he's telling the truth. And I'm, I tend to believe that God is not a liar, and I think he is telling the truth. And that is why true faith believes God. It believes God's testimony about him. Because a false faith doesn't believe God. A false faith will say, nah, God must be wrong. And all of the testimony here, all of it comes from God. Verse 9 tells us, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is even greater. He says, look, if you're going to believe men about anything ever, why would you not believe God about what is the most important thing in the world? Because, 12, again, those who have the Son have life, and whoever doesn't have the Son of God doesn't have life. Your eternal destiny is at stake. And who will you believe? Will you believe men or will you believe God? True faith believes in God. All of this comes from God. All of the testimony. Jesus is God Himself. He is the Son of God and yet God. The Bible is the written Word of God. When we read it, which we read it a lot on Sunday mornings, which I am grateful for, and we stand in just out of recognition and trying to remind ourselves, oh yes, this is the Word of God that I am listening to, not just the words of some men who are dead. And the Holy Spirit is sent from God. All of these things... We have to believe. You can't have true faith if your faith is not rooted in the gospel and rooted in the person of Jesus and rooted in who God says that Jesus is. You can't get away from that. Some today try and do this. I think of Jesus scholars or people who study Christianity who really like Jesus. Some of them even call themselves believers, but they will talk and say things like, well, you know, we just can't trust the Bible. There's a lot of errors in it. There's a lot of things that it gets wrong. Or, you know, but that is kind of a problem. You can't separate the life of Jesus from the rest of him. You have to take all of the testimony of God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves and that we have to ask others as well if we are Christians and how we interact with the world is we have to say, hey, do you believe that God is a liar? Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Do you believe what Jesus says about himself? Because this is the core of our faith. You can't have true faith unless your faith is in Jesus. And in the right Jesus, not just an idea of Jesus that you have, where you cut out all the parts about Jesus that you didn't like and made him your own Jesus. Not what does man say about Jesus, what does God say about himself? Third characteristic of true faith is that true faith prays for sinners. True faith prays for sinners. This next section really begins... Um, with an incredible truth and encouragement. Look at verses four, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have towards Him. We can ask anything according to His will and He hears us. And we know that he, he hears us in whatever we ask and we know that our requests we have asked of Him. He's telling us here is we get to, if we have this true faith, right, we can have incredible confidence when we go before the throne of God and we ask Him for things. And anything that we ask Him that's lined up with His will is heard and is answered. God says yes. That is amazing. That, that true faith and our faith, it should lead us to confidently just approach Him. And this is something that we can take for granted, that we cannot realize the privilege of, or we can forget that as sons and daughters of God, we get to go to our Heavenly Father and ask Him for things. And He listens. Even when he tells us no, even when they're not lined up with his will, the fact is that he hears you. 
He doesn't just plug his ears and say, la, 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 that he is listening to your cries late at night. He listens to your prayers of desperation. This is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us outside of the eternal life and, and new life and being transformed, that the fact that He gives us this is unbelievable. And so what should we use this gift for? How do we pray? Well, we can ask God for whatever we want that lines up with His will. So what's the first place that John goes to to tell us? Well, the first prayer he mentions has nothing to do with us at all. Verse 16, Then if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. So with this great privilege that we are given by God, we don't ask for ourselves for anything. We go and we ask God for things for other people. Again, that's, that's strange. It's not what we expect. But don't miss this. So the prayer that we are given, the circumstance that drives us here, is if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. So our first response, what John says, if you see someone who is your brother or sister in Christ and you see them sinning, you see them doing something they shouldn't be doing, whatever it is, your first response should be prayer. Your first response would be to go confidently before the throne of God and ask that they would be delivered from their sins. Then we're to pray for them. First response isn't to be to go gossip about them, to go tell people, I can't believe what I just saw so-and-so doing. How, how could they do that? It's not to judge them and think about, well, I'm glad that I'm so much better than they are because I haven't done that. I haven't done that in years. I would never do that. Our first response is to pray for them. It's not to talk about how great sinners and hypocrites they are. Our first response is to go before the throne of God and say, God, would you deliver my brother or sister from their sins? That's what we do. Also, that's love. This is, this is what true loving one another looks like embodied. And the remarkable thing we see is that God will give him life. Verse 16. So this is a promise. It is God saying, we can ask whatever you want and you know that it will be delivered. So you can know that it is God's will to deliver believers from their sin. This is a prayer that you can confidently pray and know that God is going to answer it. Know if you see your brother and sister stuck in a sin and you say, Lord, will you save them? We can know that God will. He says he will do this. He will deliver this from them. But so who do we pray this for? Right now, I think that we're not just supposed to pray this for believers, but also for all sinners as well. But we're especially supposed to pray for our fellow believers. This is why we pray weekly for each other. This is why we pray or we mention our prayer requests, even on Sunday morning. And I think one of the things that we should also be praying, on top of all of the things that we pray for, is that we do pray for each other that we are delivered from our sins. But I think this is a model for us and how we should live. That it's not just, hey, just pray for believers and that they'd be delivered from their sins. But those under their sinners, don't worry about them. You're, you're good. You don't got to pray for them. They're just leave them on their own, see if they can figure it out. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Now, because he does mention in the end of verse 16 that he says, Now, I don't say that one should pray for that. Because he does this distinction between sins leading to death and sins not leading to death. But what I don't think he's saying is he's just saying, Now, I'm not telling you that you have to pray for that. But we'll, we'll kind of get back there later. So before, before we kind of untangle that knot, we need to talk about, well, what is a sin leading to death and what is a sin that's not leading to death? Because verse 16 is telling us, pray for your brother or sister who is sinning a sin that is not leading to death. 
But there is a sin leading to death, and I don't say to pray for that. Now, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. That can get a little complicated or convoluted if you're trying to understand what John is saying here. But what he is doing is he's saying, okay, there, there's almost two categories of sins. There are sins that do lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. But so what is the difference or what does that mean? So there's different ways to understand this. The Catholic Church is where they get their, their doctrine of mortal sins, not the seven deadly sins. That's different. Should have done different branding on this. But mortal sins where, okay, these are sins where if you're sinning these sins, you are in danger or you have lost your salvation until you come back and repent. And it kind of gets off there, but it's, a, it's an attempt to understand this passage. But all of us can acknowledge, right, some sins are worse than others. Okay? Right? All sin is sin. All sin is worthy of judgment. And even the smallest sin, because none of us are perfect, is, makes us worthy of judgment in hell forever. Because all sin, no matter how small, is rebellion against God. And yet, there are some sins that are more deadly, that are worse than others. Right? There, there are levels of, of judgment. Look, somebody who is really rude to you, is, that is not the same level of sin as somebody who is a human trafficker of children. Okay, I think we can acknowledge, okay, there, there's a level there that maybe one of those is not quite as worse. They're both sin, they're both wrong, but I think this is at least some of what John is doing here. This helps us get it. But two, what I think John is really saying is the sin that leads to death, because death and life, especially in this book of 1 John, is almost always talking about eternal death or eternal life. And so this, the, what are these sins? Well, we know, verse 18, we know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. So we need to keep this in the back of our mind as well. So all throughout this letter, right, John has kind of made us scratch our heads because he says things like believers should not practice sin. For those who are following God do not keep on sinning. They don't practice sinning. So I think this includes the idea to some extent that there are sins that believers cannot sin because those sins lead to death. Those are sins that lead towards eternal condemnation. Now what are those? John doesn't tell us at night. We don't know, but in some extent, as John tells us too, if anyone who's just practicing sin, well, if you're continually practicing sin and you are never repenting, that sounds like you are sinning a sin that is heading towards death. That's why I think John doesn't give us a list, because if we, he gave us a list, then we would all somehow find ourselves examples of why I'm not on that list. I'm good. But why does John do this? So what John says, hey, don't pray for those sins who are leading towards death. It's not because we shouldn't pray for them, but it's connected to the, the privilege and that confidence of where, hey, pray for those believers who are sinning sins, not leading to death, because God will give them life. And so we know that those who are believers, sons and daughters of God, if we pray for them, that God will deliver them from their sins one day. We know that that can happen. We can pray that confidently. But for those who are sinning sins, leading to death, leading them towards a path that is heading towards eternal condemnation, we can't pray with that same kind of confidence. We don't know 100% if they will turn from their sins, if God will give them life. But still, I think what we are to do is we are to pray. We can't have the same kind of confidence, but I think we can pray it more desperately. I think we should pray it. But I think that true faith, it leads us to praying for all sinners. That that should be our, our, our gut reaction, our initial response to somebody sinning should be to pray for them.
So that is the point of this, is to pray for sinners. And I think that we need to take this to heart. One smaller application or way to think about this is generally, I don't think you should rebuke somebody that you haven't prayed for yet. If your response to seeing somebody sin is to go and tell them how wrong they are, and you haven't taken at least a second to go before your Heavenly Father on their behalf and pray for their deliverance, then you should probably stop because I don't think you have the right heart attitude towards this. This is what the prophets did. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. The prophets, they didn't just go and tell everyone how bad they were and judgment's coming and y'all are all going to die, except for Jonah, but that's why he kind of got rebuked. He wasn't the best of those. Most of the prophets, what did they do? They were weeping and begging and hoping that people would turn from their sins and turn from God. They didn't preach judgment out of excitement. They preached repentance through tears. I really just don't trust anybody who likes to act or call themselves a prophet, who just wants to correct and admonish and tell everyone how wrong all the sinners are around them. They almost seem gleeful about it. Their heart doesn't seem like they actually really want those sinners to repent and to come to Jesus. If those people act like, well, these are my enemies and I hope they're defeated, instead of, well, these are my enemies and I hope they repent and they come to Jesus and become my brothers and sisters. That should be the kind of prayers that we pray. We should pray hoping for repentance. True faith prays for sinners, whether those sinners are our brothers and sisters in faith or whether those sinners are our neighbors or people that we meet on the street or even those people we see on television or somewhere else that annoy you or frustrate you. Your response to anyone's sin should be to pray for them and to call them to Jesus. And definitely do not call someone to Jesus in repentance if you have not first prayed for them or you've missed it. So in summary, we've talked a lot about true faith. There's three, three characteristics of it. True faith overcomes. True faith overcomes our selfishness. It overcomes our sinfulness. And it also overcomes the world ultimately. The true faith believes God and it believes what God says about Jesus. And finally, the true faith prays for sinners. So we need to have true faith. We need to examine ourselves. As Paul says, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to, to look inwardly and be honest and say, Lord, where is my faith lacking? Maybe I have a little faith, but help my unbelief. And if you find yourself lacking or you find yourself with things you need to repent for, you can ask God to give you true faith because I am confident that that is a prayer that he will always answer. That is a prayer that is in his will. If you find yourself and you don't have true faith, if you find yourself and you're an unbeliever, maybe you realize, you know, I've never truly put my faith in Jesus. Call you, confess your sins. Tell Jesus about your lack of faith. Believe what God says about Jesus and who He is, and you can be given this faith that overcomes the world. It's free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to clean yourself up. There's not a list of stuff you have to do first. You just need to throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus and come and find it. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then we're going to transition into taking communion. Lord, I just thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you for all of the testimony that you have given us about Jesus. Lord, I thank you that Jesus came to save us from our sins, that you came to give us eternal life and to grant us true faith. Lord, would we have it? Lord, would you give those of us in this room who are believers and who know you, would you strengthen our faith? Lord, would you help us to have a faith that overcomes? Would you help us to have a faith that really does believe you and believes everything that you say? 
Would you remove our doubts? Lord, would you give us a faith that prays for sinners? Lord, a faith that when we see other people not walking with you, that our response is not one of pride, but our response is one of desperate prayer that you would deliver them and save them as you have delivered us. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. His love does endure forever. Your sin can't take it away. Nothing can remove it. I'm excited. Next week, we're going to start a new sermon series in the book of Judges. Um, and we we'll, should do it in about 13-ish weeks. We'll see. It um, should take us just about up to Christmas. Um, but so I'm excited to, to get into that. We should be in the first two chapters. Um, so if you want to read ahead, um, you can do that. I'm going to read this benediction from the end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Go in peace.